The reason public health measures work is because the public, for the most part, believes in them, trusts the science and the public health officers. That trust is crucial. Without it, people won't comply. And we know there are many conspiracy theories out there conspiring to erode public trust. Tonight, Jeff Semple looks at one of them, the mistaken belief 5G technology is tied to the COVID-19 outbreak. We are here to set that fact from fiction for you. We're gonna get right to it. The claim we're looking at right now, the US is developing an antivirus that includes a chip to track your movement. Do you believe there's a ring of high-profile politicians who are kidnapping and sacrificing children? I do believe that. Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm Sue Windybank and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. phone masks reduce our body's defences against COVID-19. Vaccines are being used to inject us with microchips, allowing us to be tracked and controlled. The world is being run by a cabal of satanic, cannibalistic paedophiles, including prominent Democrats, Hollywood figures and Hillary Clinton. And the only hope of defeating them is President Trump. These theories have gained traction over the last few years, And while they may seem extraordinary to many of us, they have led to the vandalism of 5G phone masks, made some reluctant to be vaccinated, and, spectacularly, led to the storming of the US Capitol in January of this year. Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? I'll be tackling this question in this episode of LSEIQ. I'll be finding out how left-wing anarchists got caught up in conspiratorial thinking, I'll hear how Irish parents looking for support and community were accused of spreading a conspiracy. And is LSE carrying out the wishes of the Illuminati? Listen to hear how we became embroiled in a global conspiracy. But first, what is a conspiracy theory? So first of all, there's a distrust of authorised explanations of events. But that's a starting point. Then beyond that, people start to consider that those explanations given by governments and so forth are deliberately calculated to give people a misperception about the truth. Conspiracy theories in the simplest way are this feeling of this idea that there is some hidden power, elites, groups, individuals who are conspiring in secrecy against not individuals, but against groups, religious groups, against a specific gender, race, or against a way of living, right? But the reasons why people believe, endorse, engage with those are very, very diverse. People use the phrase to refer to many different kinds of things, uh, conspiracies that are big, that are small, that are true, that are false, uh, and that by grouping them together, uh, reasonable critique can be disqualified by association with some wildly unlikely theories. You know, everything from, you know, the CIA being involved in wars in Latin America to the planet is run by lizard aliens uh, gets put in the same category. More on lizard aliens shortly. Conspiracy theories are built on mistrust, 
a sense that things are not as they seem. And what about those that believe in these theories? Who are they? Professor Bradley Franks from LSE's Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science has researched conspiracy theorists. He and his co-researchers interviewed people who were drawn to the ideas of English conspiracy theorist David Icke. For context, one of Icke's theories is that shape-shifting alien reptoids control the world by taking on human form. Indeed, he has claimed that many world leaders are possessed by aliens. They're bringing it in slowly. So what they're doing is that on one level, they are preparing people to be familiar with and therefore be far more likely to accept without resistance the very Orwellian society that's being brought in by these reptilian hybrid bloodlines because this archontic force has been working to manipulate human society uh, over these, what we call in our version of time, thousands and thousands of years to reach this point where they can take the whole thing over. Um, and turn humans into a slave race. This archontic reptilian force cannot create itself. It has to um, piggyback that which is already created. It cannot create the Orwellian society. It has to manipulate us to do it. So Bradley's research looked at how people who engage with these kind of theories, who meet up with others to discuss them, see the world. I asked him if the clichés about conspiracy theorists are true. There is this stereotype of a conspiracy theorist as someone, you know, who perhaps does believe in the aliens, you know, wears a tinfoil hat, they're paranoid, unscientific, perhaps not very well educated. Is that what you found? We didn't find a great deal of that. Um, and that may be partly because our sample were people who were taking their conspiracy ideas and using them to meet up with other people and were thinking about their conspiracy theory ideas as ways of beginning to change the world. So they were very actively minded. That's not to say that, in fact, there isn't a lot of other research that seems to vindicate the viewpoint you're putting forward. There is a, a fair amount of, of research that suggests that there's a, a negative correlation between the extent to which people are educated and the extent to which they believe in conspiracy theories. So the more educated people are, the less likely they are to believe in conspiracy theories. Why that is, um, is open to debate. Um, one argument is that increased education makes people uh, more flexible, more open to alternative explanations. And therefore, they aren't necessarily looking for um, cut and dried certainty in the way in which they are engaging with the world. There's no particular connection as far as we know between belief in conspiracy theories and paranoia per se uh, but there is a, a connection between wanting to in some sense be seen as special in some sense um, have a heightened sense of uniqueness a sense of power and control and a sense of being in the know often linked to narcissism with some people that believe in conspiracy theories so there's a complex range of, of qualities there, some of which um, are really quite marked and quite distinctive. But what's important to say here is that there are also qualities which are shared by everybody in the population. We all want to know things. We all have a need for self-esteem. We all think of ourselves as slightly special. The only difference here is the extent to which these tendencies are perhaps taken to extremes. And 
the extent to which these tendencies are connected to um, research about conspiracies. While lack of education can play a role in people being drawn to conspiracy theories, wanting to be special by having access to information that others don't provides a strong attraction, according to Bradley and his co-authors. They wanted to discover if people who believed in one conspiracy theory were likely to believe in other conspiracy theories, and what they found was almost a scale of different types of conspiracy theory belief. There are some people who believe in one or two, and it's a little bit of fun or a little bit of um, minor interest. They might believe in um, the idea that John F. Kennedy was um, killed by the CIA. They might believe in the idea that um, Princess Diana faked her own uh, her own death, for example. And that's just a bit of fun. But then there are other people that believe in uh, maybe specific conspiracy theories about um, particular events. So what happened to a certain aeroplane when it appeared to be shot down over the ocean, for example, or what happened when there was a financial crash in 2008. So there's some kind of localised, specific conspiracy theory belief there. And that didn't mean people necessarily believed in lots of other conspiracy theories. But there were other groups of people that did, in fact, believe in um, many different specific conspiracy theories. And these were people who had what we called a conspiratorial worldview. They weren't just believing in one particular or one or two particular conspiracy theories. Their whole perception of the world was oriented around the idea that the natural order of things is in fact a conspiratorial order of things. One kind was a group of people that believed in all of the economic structures, all of the political structures, all of the social structures of the modern world. They are all based upon a hidden background conspiracy of people that want to control the lives of ordinary citizens. So they had a generalised explanation as to why lots of specific conspiracies were taking place, because those specific conspiracies were ones which were set up by the people who were behind the scenes, pulling the strings in all aspects of our lives. So that's one way in which um, people might believe in many, many conspiracy theories. Another slightly more intriguing way in which they might believe in many different conspiracy theories concerns people that believe there was a generic, general conspiracy theory um, operating in the world, a conspiracy operating in the world, but in fact, this wasn't organised by ordinary people, ordinary people who were very rich and very powerful. It was in fact organised by extraterrestrials or agents that came from other planets. So these people veer into what's been called conspirituality, um, a conspiracy theory approach to spirituality, in which they have an idea that there are alternative ways of being, and these alternative ways of being and these alternative beings are controlling our lives. And in some cases, this amounted to the idea that there were lizard beings. In other cases, it amounted to the idea that there are aliens coming from other planets. But um, it's always about the possibility that these other kinds of beings are controlling our day-to-day lives and that even the people in power in government and so forth don't know about this. Just as religion can be used as a way of explaining complex events and resolving existential anxieties, so conspiracy theories can do the same in the lives of those that believe in them, says Bradley. Finding these same tendencies amongst several anarchists in a Zapatista solidarity collective in Montreal took Dr Erica Lagalise by surprise. 
Erica is an anthropologist and visiting fellow in LSE's International Inequalities Institute. She researches leftist social movements such as the Zapatistas, an indigenous peasant rights movement from Chiapas State, Mexico. Her encounter with these individuals, who had some troubling theories about the forces which control the world, began her interest in researching conspiracy theories. These forces they talked about were not aliens, but the Freemasons and the Illuminati, a secret group which conspiracy theorists allege controls world affairs and seeks to establish a new world order. There was a couple of guys. They told me about the Illuminati. They told me about the Federal Reserve and Freemasons, and and they told me to watch YouTube. And I went and I, I followed up. I did the reading they suggested, and I said, "What is this about?" At first, I was not familiar with this story. When they first mentioned it, I thought, okay, maybe, I don't know. Uh, maybe the world is run by Freemasons. I don't know. But then when they started going on and 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 and, and at some points, you know, mentioned that all these people were also Jewish, I thought, oh no. Oh, I don't like where this is going at all. Um, okay, I, I, I'm going to find this hard to believe now, and I'm going to have to have an argument with these guys. And how am I going to have this argument? And, and I started educating myself and w- watching the YouTube videos that they suggested and and um, reading the books that were suggested in order to be able to argue with them about it. And that was partly how I got involved and realized the importance of writing about it. We ended up having many conversations about this over the course of months. And importantly, um, the people that had originally given me this story moved away from the idea that the conspiring politicians were all Jewish. They continued to think that there was secrecy in government and that we were not being told everything that was going on. But they moved away from the idea that everyone involved was of one religion. And that, that was partly because I decided to grant certain ground in the argument. Erica was taken aback to find these ideas in a Zapatista collective. But she's not surprised when working class and other marginalised people too often get labelled as conspiracy theorists. It's just another expression of who has power. I think it's important to think about the relationship between class and conspiracy theory not because more working class people believe in conspiracy theories, but because there are classed patterns in who says who believes in conspiracy theories. So middle class people tend to talk about conspiracy theorists as if they are working class, or talk about working class people as if they're conspiracy theorists. Um, we see this a little bit during this COVID time as well. Uh, the phrases anti-masker and COVIDiot in public discourse tend to be associated with visibly angry working class populations. Um, although it's actually interesting to see how the stereotype is changing uh, with this QAnon business this past year. You know, these days it's supposedly uh, the, the stupid suburban wife. Um, she's the demographic we should hold responsible. Uh, but it's still relevant that traditionally and, and still now and not necessarily in contradiction, the phrase conspiracy theorist is largely used by people in the professional middle class to describe people in lower class positions than them. We have to look at respectability, how this phrase is used to manage respectability, one's own and that of others. This idea that the label conspiracy theorist is something that can be used to undermine someone's credibility is something Dr. Ella Droshkovitz, a social anthropologist at the Institute for Sociology at the Slovak Academy, has seen in her own work. It is often used as a weapon, a political weapon. When you label someone, As a conspiracy theorist, you immediately exclude them from the conversation. 
Uh, you, you brand them as crazy, paranoid, not worth of listening. Very often it's the way for discounting people's claims. And I'm not saying these are right claims and there is truth to them, but it's a way of discounting other people's views. Ella researched a group in Ireland called Regret, which brought together parents who believed that their daughters had been damaged by the HPV vaccine. Girls who were described as sporty and outgoing before vaccination were reported as suffering from fatigue, anxiety and headaches afterwards. These weren't people who believed in shape-shifting aliens or the Illuminati. Instead, they were parents who were looking for answers as to why their daughters were unwell. And they felt that they weren't getting answers from the Irish government or healthcare professionals. They were accused of fear-mongering and spreading conspiracy theories about the vaccine. So Regret Group is a group that was accused by Irish health authorities and authorities for being a reason why there was a very significant drop in the HPV vaccination uptake. So when the Irish government introduced the HPV vaccine for girls only, uh, it was a reasonable success and it was a positive story seen as a, a way to limit, if not eradicate, cervical cancer. It was very popular. What happened then was that a group of parents of girl, young girls as well, uh, started to ca uh, come up publicly with stories of what they believed were uh, side effects from those vaccines. And those parents and girls, they were very good at organizing themselves as creating this regret group. And this is important because it's a group of people who were pro-vaccine, but then they regretted, right? Those stories were published in the media, in the, in the newspapers, uh, but also there were discussions on uh, TV and radio related to that. So other people listened to those stories. And definitely uh, when the next round for vaccinations came up, there was a very significant, I think almost 30% drop in the vaccination uptake. So very quickly, uh, authorities came to the conclusion that, you know, those parents are and the regret group are to be blamed because they spread lies and misinformation. And while I'm not a medical doctor and I am not in a position to investigate medical histories of those women and I don't have that knowledge, as anthropologists, I was trying to understand not so much where is the truth in those claims, because I don't have that ability, but I wanted to understand why others believed them. So if this is just, you know, a conspiracy story, if, the, if these are made up lies, what is in this story that makes it so believable? for others. And I was thinking, what is it in Ireland that when there is a story of medical failure, which regards young women, people will take step back and listen to parents and not medical professionals. I talked to parents from that group. There were stories when people felt they were neglected, they were dismissed, they were laughed at, that they 
health issues were turned into mental health issues and they were quickly labeled as paranoids and to psychiatric hospitals. So they were not treated seriously. They also had difficulties. This, this is the stories they were saying that once something happens to you after you get a vaccine, it's very hard to get help. They felt that they are not trusted, not believed, that no one believes women, and they felt very attacked. And that was more significant because Ireland has a history of, unfortunately, as a state, abusing women exactly through welfare and health institutions. The most famous are the, the Madeleine Laundries and the mother and baby institutions where young women, and I think this is important in that story, that vaccine is given to young women. Ella's referring here to the Magdalene Laundries and mother and baby homes, institutions where unmarried women were sent for re-socialisation and support. In reality, they were psychologically and physically abused. Mothers were separated from their babies, who on most occasions were given away for adoption, often illegally. Many children died from malnourishment or neglect. When you grew up in this environment and you hear a story that, once again, women are being failed by the welfare, by health authorities, they are not believed, they are not trusted, and their claims are turned into mental health issues, people will take a step back and say, Let's wait. And that's, in my opinion, was the reason why regret was believed. In the case of vaccinations, it, which is a preventive medicine, it shows that this is the only option when people can opt in on, uh, or out willingly, voluntarily from healthcare system. And if they see the healthcare system as not benefiting them, as being unfair, unjust, unsatisfactory, that this is the moment when they can vote and say, I don't want to be part of it. Ella points out that the mistrust felt by the parents about the HPV vaccine was informed by the Irish state's mistreatment of women over the decades. Met by ridicule and suspicious of the answers they were given, mothers and fathers were looking for answers and they found a kind of support group in regret. To listen to professional people insult our intelligence and insult our girls, our sick girls. That is, that's very unprofessional. All we want is help and support to get our girls help back. And these are the people that put that in place, but they refuse to accept any responsibility for this. Not all the women you met were actually fully bought into the conspiracy theory, but they felt that they had exhausted all other avenues, didn't they? Yes, so... It was, that's why I think it's important not to think about conspiracy theories just as this final product that we see the knowledge information that is spread and we think this is crazy, this is silly. But I think what is important is to understand how people arrive at those conclusions and those theories and how people join those circles. And maybe not actually not all those women agreed with each other. Not They didn't share all views. Some women, one woman even told me, I don't even think this is about vaccine. I think there was too much time between vaccine and the illness. But this is the only place where I actually, when I ask questions, 
there are people around me who try to help me and find answers and find protocols and find ways to deal with, with, with the problem that she has on hands. So she felt very alone and this group gave her support and gave her a sense of community. And I think this is very important for many conspiratorial circles that they do give a sense of community. They do give support. Many types of people can clearly be labelled as conspiracy theorists. People who believe that otherworldly forces are controlling us, Zapatista anarchists and deeply worried parents looking for answers about their daughter's health. Once drawn in by these ideas, I wondered if there was any way of reasoning with those who believed them. Ella argues that the situation in Ireland is a very specific one. I think Ireland has to come to terms with its own troubled history and its own difficult gender relations and has to slowly rebuild that those issues. I'm not even saying rebuilding trust. I think it has to build trust. I'm not sure if there was trust ever. So I think it is important to understand if there is a situation such as in Ireland regarding vaccines, but it might be a completely different situation. It might be a... Um, like now after COVID, I think a lot, there, there will be a lot of concerns in many countries about broken trust between states and citizens. And I think there has to be a space for debate and for criticism of the steps that were taken in order to, you know, building the trust between authorities and, and people. Again, I think every conspiracy, every story is very different. And uh, that's why also every society, community, country has to deal with their own specific conspiracy theories in the ways that are tailored for them. That's why it's so complicated. And that's why... that like I understand that when people try to fight conspiracy theories they very quickly go into this debunking mode and this mode of countering knowledge and providing facts, fact-checking. Sure, but as I said, you know, it's a very... It's something that can be easily done, but I don't think knowledge, lack of knowledge, is the reason why people believe or endorse or engage with conspiracy theories. As Ella explains, people do not always believe in conspiracy theories just because they have a lack of knowledge. Tackling some conspiracies can be as much about building trust as providing information. Bradley Franks believes that conspiracy theorists' scepticism about evidence can make it very difficult for them to change their minds. This is particularly true if someone believes in more than just one conspiracy theory. It is possible, I think, that if somebody believes in a single particular conspiracy theory about COVID, for example, or about some kind of um, disease or illness, then it may be possible to reason with them on the basis of the scientific evidence. Because their belief in this one particular conspiracy about um, the disorder or the um, illness is itself not spread out to other kinds of conspiracies. It's a very contained conspiracy belief. So in that sense, their their belief may be open to challenging by data. Uh, but I think if somebody believes in a more all-encompassing uh, conspiratorial worldview, that's going to be very difficult 
because every point at which we offer evidence against what they believe is a reason for them to think that that evidence is been, has been fabricated, is in fact just another attempt to cover up the conspiracies in which they believe. So that's one, one side of it. The second side of it then is coming back to the possibility of individual or specific conspiracy theories being um, addressed by more scientific knowledge. In this case, it's complicated. And I would say that it's probably safer to say that once people have developed their conspiracy theory, it is hard to change their minds. But we can attempt to engage in what's called inoculation, which is a process where if you can get into people's um, debate space, into the public sphere into which they're engaging, before they have a settled conspiracy worldview or conspiracy theory, then if you're able to give them bits of information before they have a settled conspiracy theory, then you can begin to um, unsettle and challenge their tendency towards conspiracy theories by engaging in a simple tactic that comes from social psychology, which is trying to inoculate people against those views. What Bradley is describing here is the idea that people can be inoculated against conspiracy theories by being exposed to anti-conspiracy ideas. But this must come before the conspiracy becomes deeply embedded in their belief system. Given that it can be so difficult to change a conspiracy theorist's mind, I wanted to understand more about the shadowy forces that some believe in. Erica Lagerlees has studied the Illuminati and wrote about them in her book, Occult Features of Anarchism with Attention to the Conspiracy of Kings and the Conspiracy of the Peoples. In it, she tackles the misinformation about this clandestine fraternity. The Illuminati were basically a radical reading society. You know, Adam Weishaupt, he was a Bavarian professor. He founded the Illuminati in 1776. Uh, he had very radically egalitarian ideas for his day, more than most. Um, that's maybe what made him special. Uh, his revolutionary agenda involved the dismantling of not just the church's power, but the state and the institution of private property as well, uh, which went far beyond many of uh, his contemporaries at the time. Um, Weishaupt joined a Masonic lodge in 1774, but left shortly after, unsatisfied with the level of critique he found there. Um, and it's true that members of the Illuminati later went back to Masonic lodges to try and make new friends and get, you know, more Masons to join their more radical project. Uh, the Illuminati grew from this prof and five students in 76 to about 50-something members in five cities by uh, just three years later, and eventually did extend to Italy, Lyon, Strasbourg, elsewhere in Europe, uh, included some famous names like Mozart, Herder. You know, and the pyramid structure of the network was modeled on Masonic form. It was organized into three grades and so forth. Uh, um, it, it mostly just as an agency of, for the transmission of Enlightenment ideas that are quite commonplace now, though. Um, although it was sort of a quasi-religious sect at the same time in which men met to contemplate uh, the utopian regeneration of society. Its growth was pretty short-lived, though. Uh, one of the members quit and tattled to his employer, uh, who was a duchess of the Bavarian royal family, and by the end of the 18th century, government propaganda vilifying the Illuminati and Freemasons, who were all you know, supposedly under its control, was everywhere, and members had to go into hiding or exile. 
Um, and yeah, these days there's a strong pop culture narrative that the Illuminati control Freemasons who control government. Um, but already in the 18th century, we're hearing claims that all Freemasons are under the control of the Illuminati, but it was the government talking then. As Erica sets out, the Illuminati were a network of intellectuals who argued for self-government and against private property. Yet the public is now often told that they were and are the very group that controls governments and defends private property around the world. Interestingly, she argues that there is actually a link between the modern-day revolutionary left and Freemasons and the Illuminati. The lodges of Freemasons and the social spaces of reading societies like the Illuminati and other such fraternities and clubs were the places where critical thinkers gathered in the 19th century, you know, including uh, both what we would now call liberals and socialists and anarchists for that matter. You know, some of the people involved in these spaces at the time, you know, were privileged men that used these uh, networks and spaces to consolidate and further their social power and influence. Absolutely. And some others were there to try and agitate and uh, organize for social change. And, you know, the social infrastructure of the early socialist movement you know, did grow out of uh, these social spaces. What's the biggest continuity today. I mean, one of my most important points is just consistently that the social spaces of the left remain uh, masculine social spaces. Even anarchists that claim to be feminists, you know, advance a theory of power where the state, the kind of power that bothers them, uh, becomes the prototype for all power in general. You know, conspiracy theorists should really focus on gender. If they pointed out that a suspicious proportion of leaders on the right and left were men, you know, they'd be right. Closer to home, and much to the surprise of many who work here, LSE actually appears in some conspiracists' worldview. And this takes us to the Illuminati of David Icke's imagination. Bradley Franks explains. He is very, very skilled at weaving conspiratorial ideas. He sells books on it. He sells out Wembley Arena once every couple of years. Um, He's a major conspiracy theory thinker, if you will of the lizard Illuminati, which is the concept that at the very top of the conspiratorial tree, there are the Illuminati, the people who are a hidden group of conspirators who are in fact alien lizards, but they're in human form. Now, beneath this top level of the hierarchy, there are lots of human groups who are concerned with playing out and supporting the conspiracies of the Illuminati. So there's the Bilderberg Group, um, there's the Federal Reserve, there's the Royal Institute, there's the um, House of Rockefeller, House of Rothschild, and there's the London School of Economics. We are seen as part of that small and select but complicated group of people that are um, helping to maintain and helping to run the conspiracies of the Illuminati. The idea there would be that universities, and in particular universities like the LSE, is um, very much connected with influencing public policy on economics, on government, on social policy. And in doing so, we are, according to David Icke, we are simply um, fulfilling the orders of those in power above us. Even though we're not aware of doing this, we are part of these conspiracies. Is this a theory that you can debunk? For myself, I certainly can, um, I think. Although, given that, given that conspiracy theories are based upon this idea of people 
not knowing they are even part of the conspiracies, then it's, it's actually very, very difficult. And in a way, your question puts a finger on a key idea in conspiracy theories, which is that um, the evidence in favor or against conspiracy theories can always be twisted around. So if we can provide some evidence to say that we are not part of the um, order of the Illuminati, for example, well, a conspiracy theorist can come back and say, well, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? This is precisely what you'd expect a conspiracy theorist to say. So in a way, um, we might be able to debunk this conspiracy theory to our own um, satisfaction, but I don't think we'd ever be able to do so to the satisfaction of those who actually believe in it. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's a very good one. Thank you. <laughs> So why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Ella Droshkovitz describes the lighter side of getting involved with some of these ideas. They're fun sometimes too. Not always, but uh, the way we are drawn to it, it's those. they also have this appealing part of investigation, of going into rabbit hole, of finding new facts, they give you a thrill and excitement of discovering little bits and pieces. I recognize those feelings as a researcher. I like my own little investigations when I do research, and I am excited when I find new facts that fits into theory I'm working with. So I do understand that when people look for information and try to make sense of the world around them and they do they little investigations or big investigations it's thrilling it's exciting to to find new new stuff but i think very often conspiracy theories are not a serious threatening big theories not all theories are about serious racial gender class political issues the conspiracy theories that younger people, teenagers, engage with very often are funny and light. And this is what attracts people to, to them, that they're like pop culture. There's an element of pop culture, of fan design, of memes and other um, cartoons that connect to them. Uh, there, It's a comical element to it. Uh, sarcasm, humor. So... Uh, I think we have to recognize that as well, that sometimes they're just fun. But for others, their involvement in conspiracy theories is much more serious and involving. David Icke has said that he connects the dots, and this is what helps him see the big picture. By joining the dots in this way, he claims that there is a multi-level conspiracy to maintain humanity in a state of slavery. But this approach is where people can go wrong, says Bradley Franks. One psychological reason is that people, human beings, are designed to find patterns in the world. Um, our brains are designed to detect correlations between phenomena, um, to look at correlations and connections, and to see patterns even where there are none. And so often it's the case that people are using this design feature of the human mind to find patterns they're using this design feature in a way beyond the evidence to find patterns which aren't really there 
And in, in the case of conspiracies, they are imposing a pattern structure on data which are just very messy. In fact, it's more often the case that things that they see as conspiracies are really just cases of chance events which are connected by chance correlations and nothing else, or certainly not the deliberate agency of, of individuals or groups. Connecting events can clearly be misleading. For example, this was illustrated when 5G mobile phone technology was wrongly linked with a once-in-a-generation pandemic. As a result, a conspiracy with violent consequences was born. For Erica Lagerlis, conspiracies are born out of a lack of trust for authority, and sometimes people's suspicions might not be so far off the mark. A sort of typical folk sociological explanation for why people believe in conspiracy theories is that they are comforting, that they provide explanations for things that are difficult to explain. Um, I'm not sure if the a lot of the conspiracy theories I've heard are particularly comforting, though. <laughs> it sort of doesn't sit easily with me as an explanation. I'd be more inclined to say that people believe in conspiracy theories because they don't trust institutions. Whether or not the specific conspiracy theory in question is true or even reasonable in any way, um, it is generally reasonable that people would have a certain amount of mistrust for uh, institutions and that this is one reason why people would be vulnerable to a whole range of theories as to what's really going on behind closed doors in government. People are suspicious of the government and of the, the, the program or of the pharmaceutical industry. They're not wrong to have concerns about what the government is up to and if they're being fully honest with us. Everyone knows that the media is biased and that governments sometimes don't share everything they're doing. So it's not entirely wrong for people to be concerned, even if we disagree and wish they were not. You know, and it might seem more difficult to rationalize something like uh, the lizard leader theory or something, and that seems more wild. But even even that um, makes sense in some way if you think about how there's a long cultural tradition of referring to the uh, aristocracy as you know blue-blooded, right, unfeeling, selfish. Um, in that sense, the the leap from you know that to lizards is a certain sort of allegorical leap, um, but it's not entirely nonsensical. Maybe you enjoy conspiracy theories. Maybe you believe in some conspiratorial ideas yourself. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. We're taking a short break for summer, but we'll be back in the autumn when we'll be asking more questions with interesting answers. Please join us then. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Natalie Abbott, Oliver Johnson, Sophie Mallet, and me, Sue Windybank. Want to explore more about conspiracy theories? This episode was based in part on the following research. Taking vaccine regret and hesitancy seriously. The role of truth, conspiracy theories, gender relations and trust in the HPV immunisation programmes in Ireland by Ella Droshkovitz in the Journal for Cultural Research. Beyond monocologicality. Exploring conspiracist worldviews by Bradley Franks, Adrian Bangarter, Martin W. Bauer, Matthew Hall, and Mark C. Nort. Occult features of anarchism, with attention to the conspiracy of kings and the conspiracy of the peoples, by Erica Lagerlis, PM Press, 2019. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ 
or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover.